Leap of Faith with Penina Taylor. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Leap of Faith. I'm Penina Taylor, your host, and I'm really excited to be here with you, sharing stories and ideas that will inspire us all in our own spiritual journeys. Perhaps you're wondering who I am or what qualifies me to be talking about spiritual journeys in the first place. Well, you see, I've been on quite a spiritual journey myself, and I'm glad to say it's not over yet, because once it's over, it's all over. In fact, I once heard it said that life is about moving. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. But the moment you stop moving, you're dead. So my journey's not over and neither is yours. Now, today's show is going to be a little different because today I'm going to be sharing my own story with you. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the concept of a story. Why have people come on the air and share their stories? Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good story. And I'm guessing you do too. In fact, most people do. We connect with stories. Stories feed our imagination and they spark inspiration. Stories help us identify with the main character. They help us for just a moment to live in the other person's shoes and to truly understand them in a way we just couldn't without the assistance of the story. In fact, human beings, we're wired for stories. We use stories to punctuate our own visions of who we are, but also we use stories to categorize, identify, and empathize with others. And so this show is going to be about stories. Now, not all of the episodes will be the same. Sometimes we'll have a guest who will be telling us the story of their personal journey. Sometimes we'll have experts come and talk about an aspect of spirituality that's been part of their own spiritual journey. And every once in a while, we'll just have a conversation, just you and me. But hopefully all of the shows will get you to think and inspire you along your own spiritual journey, your own human journey, which is something we are all on. So now we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'll be sharing with you some of my own journey. Thank you for joining me for Leap of Faith. I'm Penina Taylor, and we'll be right back. Taylor. Okay, and welcome back. You're listening to Leap of Faith. I'm Panina Taylor, your host. And today we're talking about, well, actually, I'm doing the talking. I'm sharing my personal journey with you so that we can get to know each other a little better. All right, so I was born into a secular Jewish home. Now, what that means is that what my Judaism meant to me was it explained why I had a big nose, why I talked with my hands, and why I liked Chinese food. Other than that, my Judaism really had no meaning, no relevance in my life. And it was within this context that I grew up. I also had a bit of a traumatic childhood. My parents were divorced when I was four years old, and I suffered a tremendous amount of abuse at the hands of a friend of our family. And so when I got to high school, 
I was really starting to ask some very existential questions. I was starting to ask, you know, what's the point of it all? I mean, if if all life is about is pain and there's nothing out there greater and more meaningful than all this pain that I'm going through, what's the point? I started to indulge in some drug use, in some negative behaviors. I was hanging around with a bad crowd of kids at school, and my life was beginning to spiral downwards into an abyss from which I thought there was really no escape. Well, about that time, I'm in high school and I'm asking these questions, a classmate of mine said, you know, Panina, your questions are no different from that of any other normal American high school teenager. She said, we all have these questions. And and she said, what you need is to have a relationship with God. And I listened to what she said and I thought, you know, it, it just rang true for me. Now, I told you that I was raised in a secular Jewish home, but I actually did have a little bit of a Jewish upbringing. You see, for fourth and fifth grade, my paternal grandparents decided that that I needed to know what it meant to be Jewish. And so they arranged for me to go to an Orthodox Jewish day school. Now, that was for fourth and fifth grade. The only problem is, is that what I learned there didn't really stick. You see, I very quickly learned that what happens at home stays at home and what happens at school stays at school. Perhaps some of you can identify with what I'm talking about. My first day in the Orthodox Jewish Day School, I learned about something called Shabbat. And I thought, wow, this is really amazing. And so I was very excited in all my fourth grade exuberance. I came running home to tell my mom about this thing that I had learned about called Shabbat. I had never heard of any such thing. And my mom's response actually kind of shocked me. She turned to me and she said, don't you tell me how to live my life. Uh, Okay, not quite sure why I got that reaction. But a little while later, one Monday morning when I was in school, my friends were all talking about what they had done over the weekend. And I was really excited to share what I had done over the weekend because Remember, I was being raised by a single mom, and we didn't have a lot of money, and so we didn't get to do a lot of things. But this one particular weekend, my mom had saved up her money and and taken my sister and me to an amusement park on Saturday. Clearly, I was fairly new to this Orthodox Jewish stuff because it didn't register to me that this might be a problem. So I was very excitedly sharing with my friends about what we had done, that we had gone to this amusement park on Saturday. And my teacher caught wind of what I had said, kind of picked me up and pulled me out of the classroom and said, stop being so chutzpahdeck. I didn't even know what the word chutzpahdeck meant. You know, for all I knew, it could have been some sort of contagious disease or something. But, uh, and maybe, (laughs) I guess there are some people who probably think that chutzpah is a contagious disease. But whatever it meant, I understood that it was not something that I wanted to be. And so I very quickly learned that what happens at home stays at home, and what happens at school stays at school. So now here I was all these years in the future in high school, and my classmate says what I need is to have a relationship with God. And I thought back to some of what I had learned in Hebrew school, and I thought, you know, I think she's right. I think I need to have a relationship with God. And so at the age of 16, I was introduced to God and to Jesus, because it turns out that my classmate was also a born-again Christian. Well, (laughs) My newfound faith gave me the strength to make all sorts of changes in my life. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped drinking. I stopped hanging around with a bad crowd of kids at school. I began to attend classes. My grades started to come up. 
And my mom was watching while all of this was happening. And she saw this change going on in my life. So when I began to share my new faith with my mom, she thought to herself, if something could have such a profound effect on my daughter's life, it must be the truth. And so I brought my mother and my sister to Christianity as well. After high school, I went off to Bible college. I got a certificate in evangelism explosion. I served as a counselor several times for the Billy Graham crusade. And I began dating the older brother of my best friend from high school. His name was Paul. Now, Paul had gone to Moody Bible Institute, which is one of the more prestigious missionary training colleges in the United States. And he and I were starting to get quite serious and began to talk about marriage. And I thought to myself, you know, I've always had this dream that my father would walk me down the aisle when I got married. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange. What do you mean you had a dream? Well, for most people, it doesn't have to be a dream. It's reality. But remember, my parents got divorced when I was four years old, and I hadn't seen my father in 15 years, except one time. He didn't know us. And how was he going to walk me down the aisle when I got married if he didn't even know me? So I asked my mom if it would be okay to write a letter to my dad. He was living in New Jersey at the time, and we were living in Florida to ask him if he would be willing to come down and visit us and spend some time getting to know us. Well, to my surprise, my mom said yes. Of course, this was in the days when we didn't have, uh, not only did we not have WhatsApp and other uh, text messaging type of programs, but we didn't even have email at that point. And so I wrote a letter to my dad and we sent it to him. And to my surprise, my father said yes. And so we arranged for my dad to come and visit with us for two weeks during Christmas break. So he came down to Florida to visit with us and he started to get to know me and my sister better. Well, while he was with us, he also started to get to know my mom better. And at some point he decided that he was falling back in love with my mom. And so he asked my mom, he said, you know, I'm falling back in love with you. And I was wondering if you would be willing to remarry me. And my mom said, you know, I'm falling back in love with you as well. But we've got a problem. You see, I'm a born again Christian. And you're a secular Jew. And that's not going to work. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop the presses. I know how to bring somebody to Christianity. Remember, I had a certificate in evangelism. And uh, I said, I know how to bring somebody to Christianity. So I went to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and I bought my dad a Bible and I began to share with him from the Bible. And long story short, my dad decided to become a Christian as well. I took him to church and he was baptized and my parents were remarried after having been divorced for 15 years. And seven months later, my dad walked me down the aisle when I married Paul in the church. Well, Paul at that point had enlisted in the United States Air Force, and so we ended up shipping off to England. While we were in England, one day I was praying, and I suddenly got the feeling that God was telling me to light candles on Friday night. And I thought, you know, I don't know where this is coming from. I mean, I knew enough to know that Jewish women lit candles on Friday night to bring in the Sabbath, but my mother didn't light candles. 
My grandmother didn't light candles. I'm sure that my great-grandmother must have lit candles, but I didn't remember seeing her light Shabbat candles. But anyway, I had this very strong feeling that God was telling me I should light candles on Friday night. So I went to my husband and I asked him, I said, I'm, I'm getting this feeling that God wants me to light candles on Friday night. What do you think I should do? And he responded, well, if you think that this is what God wants you to do in your service to him, in your relationship to him, then go for it. So if you're going to light candles, what's the first thing that you need? You need candles or candlesticks. Anyway, you need something to hold the candles, right? So I remembered that I had inherited my great-grandmother's candlesticks. So I went over to the buffet and I opened the drawer and I pulled out my great-grandmother's candlesticks. And I also pulled out a Maxwell House Passover Haggadah, which was sitting in the drawer next to the candlesticks. Now, remember I told you that my family was secular, but we did do one Jewish thing each year, and that was Passover. Of course, our Passover Seder didn't look like what most of you would recognize as a Passover Seder. Our Passover Seder went sort of like this, and maybe some of you can identify with it. We would come over to my grandparents' house, and we would walk in, and my great-grandmother would greet us with a good yuntif. Again, I didn't know what that meant, but that's what Bubby would say. She would greet us with a good yuntif. We would come in. My grandfather would pull out a stack of Maxwell House Passover Haggadahs that he had collected over the years, because back in those days, Maxwell House used to produce for Passover a special run of kosher for Passover coffee. And they also printed their own Passover Haggadah. That's the book that we use for the Passover Seder. And they would sell them, or rather they would give them away free if, for example, you would buy two jars of, of the special kosher for Passover Maxwell House coffee. So then we would all sit down and he would say something like, okay, everybody turn to page 25 or something like that. So we would all turn to page 25 and he would read a paragraph we would sing the chorus to Dayenu, and then we would eat. We had matzah, because it was Passover after all, but we also ate a whole lot of things that you probably would not recognize as being kosher for Passover. But I had this very fond family memory of celebrating Passover, and so when I got married, I asked my grandmother if it would be okay for me to take one of these Passover Haggadahs. So what does the Passover Haggadah have to do with lighting candles on Friday night? Well, you're going to have to wait to find out. Right now it's time for us to go to a short break, but when we come back, I will continue the story. Thank you for listening to Leap of Faith. I'm Panina Taylor, and I'll be right back. Leap of Faith with Panina Taylor. Welcome back to Leap of Faith. I'm Panina Taylor, and my guest today is, well, me. When we left off for the last break, I was sharing my story with you, and I stopped while talking to you about the Maxwell House Passover Haggadah. If you'll recall, I had decided that God was telling me to start lighting candles on Friday night, and so I took out the candlesticks that belonged to my great-grandmother and the Maxwell House Passover Haggadah that was in the drawer next to them. And I told you a little bit about the Haggadah, but the reason 
that the Haggadah has any relevance to this is I remembered that inside the front cover of the Maxwell House Passover Haggadah is the blessing for lighting candles. It's there because we light candles at the beginning of every Jewish holiday in addition to Shabbat. The nice thing about it was that not only did it have the candle lighting prayer for lighting on Passover, but it also had a line for lighting if it's on Friday night, because sometimes Passover begins on Friday night. It also happens to be the case that this Passover Haggadah had transliteration, and so I was able to use this to be able to make the blessings when lighting the candles on Friday night. And so I began lighting candles on Friday night. Meanwhile, I was still going to church on Sunday. A little while later, one day, my husband came running down the stairs all excited, and he said to me, Penina, Penina, I was reading in the Old Testament. Now, for my Jewish listeners, the Old Testament is what non-Jews call our Tanakh. They've taken the Hebrew Bible, they've changed the order of the books, and they've mistranslated certain passages to make it say what they want it to say. But it is essentially our Tanakh. Anyway, Paul says to me, I was reading in the Old Testament, and I came across a verse that says, that there are certain things that God told the Jewish people that they're to do forever. And he said to me, if forever really means forever, and I'm to be right before God, then my Jewish wife and my Jewish children need to do these things. Now, you have to understand that my husband and I were truth seekers. We always have been. So here he is, he's telling me, that there's something that God expects the Jewish people to do forever. And wanting to serve God in truth, I said, okay, go ahead, shoot. He said, well, it says in the Old Testament that God told the Jewish people that they're not supposed to eat pork or shellfish. I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean no more ham and cheese sandwiches? He said, uh, no. I had to think about it a minute. But again, if this is what God wants from me, then this was what I was going to do. So I agreed to stop eating pork and shellfish. So now here I am, I'm lighting candles on Friday night, I'm not eating pork or shellfish, and I'm going to church on Sunday. Well, a little while later, one day, I was reading in the Christian part of the Christian Bible, which is called the New Testament, and I came across a verse that talks about head coverings. Now, it wasn't very clear whether it was saying that men are supposed to cover their heads and women aren't, or women are supposed to cover their heads and men aren't. So my husband and I asked the pastor of our church, and we invited him to come to our house to try to explain this passage to us. So he comes over and he comes in and he sits down, and I asked him to please explain the passage. So he says to me, well, you know, it's kind of a complicated passage. I'm like, yeah, I know, that's why I invited you here. He said, no, really, this particular passage, even in the Greek, it's hard to understand. It's uh, not so easy to determine which word is modifying which word. And I said, okay, well, what do you think it's saying? He said, well, what I think it says is that married women are supposed to cover their head when they pray. He said, but I can't teach that because women nowadays don't want to hear it. Now, if you're somebody who is convinced that something is the right thing to do, do you think that the excuse that women nowadays don't want to hear it is reason enough to not do it? Of course not. So I decided that I would start covering my head when I prayed. I started out by just wearing a hat on my head, but I found that I am very easily distracted and would misplace the hat. And every time I wanted to talk to God, because that's what prayer is, right? 
I would have to go first figure out where I had left the hat. And so I decided there had to be a better way to deal with it. So I bought a scarf and I decided that I would wear the scarf around my shoulders when I wasn't praying and I would put it on my head to pray. The only problem is, it's not such a problem, I discovered that I pray all the time. And so just to make life easier, I decided to wear the scarf all the time. So now here I was lighting candles on Friday night, not eating pork or shellfish, and covering my head all the time, and going to church on Sunday. Well, soon something began to happen inside of me. Back then, I didn't know what it was. Now, looking back, I call it my spiritual identity crisis. What I believe was happening is that my Christian beliefs were beginning to be at war with my Jewish soul, my neshama. Because I'm a very firm believer that any time a Jewish person begins taking on mitzvot, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing, they open a conduit for their soul to begin communicating with God. And as that began to happen, a restlessness was going on inside of me. Well, some time later, my parents had come to visit us. Remember, we were in England. I was helping my mom unpack her suitcases. Now, last we had left my parents. They were attending a very nice little Assembly of God Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm helping my mom unpack her suitcase. And one suitcase is completely full of Judaica items. Talits, tzitzit, sitters, shofars, kipot, you name it. All kinds of Judaica. So I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, what's with the Judaica? And she said, well, while we were in Pittsburgh, we discovered a group of people who were born Jewish, but who believe in Jesus and have found a way to synthesize their Jewish heritage with their Christian faith. And they call themselves Messianic Jews. Well, I had never heard of Messianic Jews, but I thought that was intriguing. And so when my husband and I came back to the United States a year later, we decided to seek out one of these Messianic congregations. And up until this point, while we had not had our own church or congregation, we had been in leadership positions within every church that we were in. We started attending a Messianic congregation in Maryland, and like usual, we began being involved in the leadership. My husband was a lay leader, and we both played on the worship team. I played the guitar. I, at one point, I was the head of women's ministries and other things like that. Anyway, after doing this for a little while, one day, my dad approached my husband and I and said, you know, it's an hour's drive to the local Messianic congregation, and you know, we've kind of formed our own views about the best way to be Messianic Jews. He said, and, you know, Paul is a, a trained pastor, and Panina, you're also a leader, and Mom and I were very administrative, and we think that the four of us together would make a great team in starting our own Messianic congregation. So my husband and I decided to pray about it, and we agreed that it was God's will that we start this Messianic congregation. So my husband and I, along with my parents, started a Messianic congregation in Bowie, Maryland. Well, I thought to myself, you know, if we're going to be doing something Jewish, let's face it, it's Messianic Jewish, it's supposed to be Jewish, we ought to know a little something about Judaism, don't you think? So I decided to go to the Jewish bookstore to get out a book on Judaism. And wouldn't you know it, the Jewish bookstore has a lot of books on Judaism. But one book in particular caught my eye, and it was called How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household. It was written by a woman named Blue Greenberg, who's a very modern Orthodox woman. And throughout the book, instead of using the term Orthodox, she preferred to use the term Torah observant. And I thought to myself, you know, I like that. 
Torah observant. Maybe that's what we need to be. Maybe we need to be Torah observant Messianic Jews. And so I went back to the Jewish bookstore and I started buying loads and loads and loads of books on Judaism and how to be an Orthodox Jew. I learned everything that you can learn about being an Orthodox Jew from reading a book. Now, you cannot learn everything there is to learn about being an Orthodox Jew by reading a book. But everything that you could learn from reading a book, I did. And we began to make changes in our life. My husband started wearing a kippah and tzitzit, and I and my daughter started dressing modestly. And if you had run into us on the street, you would have thought we were an Orthodox Jewish family, just like any Orthodox family in Baltimore or Muncie or Jerusalem. You never would have known that we also believed in Jesus. Well, we ran this Messianic congregation along with my parents for about three years, and as you can imagine, it's not always so easy to run a joint leadership program with your parents, and we decided that we valued our relationship with my parents more than our positions, and so we left the congregation, but my parents continued to run the congregation for several more years after we left. After leaving the congregation with my parents, we ended up at a Messianic congregation in Northern Virginia. And there was an event in the Baltimore congregation. So we were at this event, and after the event, there was food, and there was this very nice blonde-haired lady who was, she could tell by looking at me that I might be concerned that the food isn't kosher, and so she was convincing me that the food was kosher. And she stopped in mid-sentence, and she looked straight at me, and she said, how would you like to buy a nice big five-bedroom house in Upper Park Heights, Baltimore? Now, you have to understand that Upper Park Heights is the heart of the Orthodox Jewish community. She said, in fact, I believe that God wants you to buy this house. Now, I was used to Christians speaking this way, but I thought perhaps that this woman was a few French fries short of a Happy Meal. I'm not very good at confrontation. And so I tried to figure out a way to get out of the conversation. And I knew that the best way to do that was to blame it on my husband. So I said, well, I need to go ask my husband. So I went over to him and I told him about what this woman had said. And instead of saying what I expected him to say, which was that I was crazy and we're not headed to Baltimore, he said, well, you could take a look at it. Now, I have it on good authority that that was the first and last time I was ever speechless. And so I picked myself up. I went over to the lady and I told her that my husband says that we could take a look at the house. So we made an appointment and we went to see the house. And long story short, we absolutely fell in love with the house. We then did what any good messianic couple would do in our situation. We went back to our congregation and asked them to pray concerning God's will as to whether or not we should buy this house. Now, if you want to know what happened, you're going to have to wait until after the break because it's time for us to stop now. But we'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Leap of Faith. I'm Penina Taylor. See you soon. Leap of Faith with Penina Taylor. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the last segment of today's show. I'm Panina Taylor, and you're listening to Leap of Faith. And we're discussing today on our inaugural episode of the show, my personal story, my personal journey. When last we left off, I was sharing with you that we had asked our congregation 
to pray concerning whether or not it was God's will for us to buy this house in the Orthodox neighborhood in Baltimore. And they even held a special prayer service for the purpose. And wouldn't you know it, all 250 members of the congregation unanimously agreed that it was God's will for us to buy this house. Why? Because who better to convert Orthodox Jews to Messianic Judaism than Messianic Jews who look and act like Orthodox Jews. And so we made the arrangements and we moved in. But shortly after we moved in, we realized that we had a problem. You see, the Messianic congregation was not within walking distance of our home, and we realized that if we got in our car and we drove on Shabbat, none of our neighbors would listen to a thing that we had to say. So we decided that what we would do instead was that we would attend one of the more than a dozen Orthodox Jewish synagogues or shuls in our neighborhood on Shabbat, and then we would drive to the Messianic congregation for the midweek meeting to get our fill of all of that Messianic stuff. So which congregation to go to? Well, it turns out that the rabbi of the Jewish bookstore that I had been going to to learn all those things about being an Orthodox Jew also happened to be a communal rabbi. He had a shul in the neighborhood. And so that's how we decided where to go. And it was a good thing we did because, you see, when we moved into the house, we didn't realize that the nice blonde-haired lady who had sold us the house, who wasn't Jewish, and we knew she wasn't Jewish, but three years before she sold us the house, she had taken it upon herself to go knocking door to door to all of her Jewish neighbors, and they were all Jewish, to inform them, just in case they didn't know, that they were all hopelessly lost and going to burn in hell forever. So you can imagine how the neighbors felt about her and how excited they must have been when she told them that she had sold the house. But she also told them that she had sold it to a nice Messianic Jewish family. And many people in the community didn't know what to do. I mean, okay, Orthodox Jews who live in the West know how to live next door to non-Jews. That's, that's not a problem. But how do you live next door to Jewish people whose sole purpose, pun intended, is to convert you and your children to some form of Christianity? And so the community really didn't know how to deal with us. And so we were very happy to realize that the shul that we decided to attend, nobody there really knew who we were. So the first Shabbat, we made our way to the shul, and it was an amazing experience. The people there were warm and friendly. They showed me how to follow the reading in the Torah and where we were in the davening. And the, on the other side of the mechitza, the mechitza is the divider between the men's and the women's section, my husband, who appeared to be Jewish for all intents and purposes, he was wearing a kippah and a talit, and he had a sitter, and all three of the boys that were there with him were also wearing kippot and tzitzit. So they offered him an aliyah to the Torah. Basically, they called him up to the Torah. And he explained to them, my husband being a man of tremendous integrity, answered, I'm not Jewish. The reason that this is significant is that in many Messianic congregations all over the world, non-Jews, and it's fine that there are non-Jews going to Messianic congregations, they can go wherever they want, uh, but non-Jews are learning not only how to look and act like Orthodox Jews, but they're learning how to make the blessings on reading from the Torah. They're even learning how to read from the Torah, and then they go and they visit Orthodox congregations or the Kotel in Jerusalem and they are counted in a minion, and when they're given an aliyah to the Torah, they give a fake Hebrew name so that no one is the wiser, and what's happening is really they're committing a crime against the Jewish people. 
Now, a lot of people have said to me, well, Penina, that's like really harsh. Well, maybe it is. But the truth is, is that what they're doing is not right because they're being deceptive. So anyway, my husband, who is a man of tremendous integrity, when he was given a, an aliyah to the Torah, he said, I'm not Jewish. Well, everybody was still very wonderful to him. And a short while later, a couple of weeks later, my husband says to me, you know, Penina, we need to tell the rabbi that we are messianic believers because at some point it's going to come out and we don't want him to feel like we've been lying, like we've betrayed him. And so we really need to tell him what we believe. And I said to him, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea. I don't see this ending well. Well, he persisted and I relented and we invited the rabbi to come to our house to talk to us. Now, the rabbi, of course, thought that we were asking him to come over to talk about conversion. Makes sense, right? I'm Jewish. My husband's not. My children are, of course. We must be asking him to come over to discuss conversion for my husband. So the rabbi comes in and my husband begins by telling him what he believes. And after a minute or so, the rabbi stops him and he says, well, you don't believe that anymore, do you? And my husband says, yeah, I do. Well, in the moment that it took for shock to register on the rabbi's face, I began to see my world implode. We had just bought this big expensive house. We couldn't turn around and sell it. I was homeschooling my children and I didn't know what they were going to do. I was sure that they would kick us out of the shul. Maybe my kids would get beaten up. Maybe they would take our pictures and make posters and put them on the lampposts on the street saying, warning, missionaries. I mean, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And so I began to cry. And the rabbi turned to me and he said the most important words that anyone has said to me anywhere along my Jew Jewish journey. He said, you are a Jewish woman no matter what you believe. Even though what you believe is not Judaism, it's not kosher, and it's not okay, let me be clear. But as a Jewish woman, you are responsible before God to fulfill the mitzvot, the commandments that God has given the Jewish people. And he said, therefore, I'm going to allow you and the children to continue to come to the shul. He did ask that my husband not come. He said, but there's one caveat. He said, I want you to talk to a guy from an organization called Jews for Judaism. Now, I had never heard of Jews for Judaism, but I'm not stupid. Jews for Jesus, Jews for Judaism, they probably don't like people like me very much. Well, I agreed because what else was I going to do? But I put it off for as long as I could. And eventually he made it clear that I needed to talk to this guy. So I made an appointment. His name was Mark and he came over and he walks in the door and he says, now, let's talk about why you think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And I thought to myself, do you start every conversation this way? Well, my husband was very happy to do the talking and I was perfectly happy to let him. And so he threw out a verse and Mark said, well, let's take a look at that. And so he opened the Bible to the book of Isaiah where this verse was found. And he turned to me and he said, Penina, have you ever read this verse in its context before? And I said, of course, I read my Bible every year from cover to cover. He said, okay, but when you read the Tanakh, the Old Testament, you see Jesus on every page, right? I said, of course, who else can it be about? He says, I want you to do me a favor just this once. I want to read this passage with you, and I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people who were alive during the time that the prophet Isaiah was writing this, which was 700 years before the destruction of the second temple, 700 years before Jesus ever walked this earth. Would you be willing to do that for me? And I said, sure. And so for the first time in 17 years, I read this passage without the bias that it was talking about Jesus. And guess what I discovered? Not only was it not talking about Jesus, it was not a messianic passage whatsoever. 
And in order for it to say what Christianity claims it says, they had to mistranslate the verse. Well, we only covered one more topic, and Mark left. He really didn't spend that much time with us, but he left me with an awful lot to chew on, because if this one belief that I had held for 17 years was based on a lie, what else did I believe was based on a lie? And so I went back to him and I started presenting him with a lot of other passages. You know, what about this verse and what about that verse? And I didn't take his word for it either. I went back to my messianic friends and I went back to our pastors and went to Jews for Jesus. And one by one, the bricks of the foundation of my faith were being pulled out. And so the entire structure collapsed and I was left with the daunting task of having to figure out what I actually believed. Did I still believe in God? And if I did, was the Tanakh God's word to the Jewish people? And if it was, what did that mean? My responsibilities were as a Jewish woman. Did I have to be Orthodox or or could I be something else? Well, my search led me to embrace Torah observant Judaism or what we normally call Orthodox Judaism. And this year, I celebrated my 18th anniversary as a religious Torah-observant Jewish woman in the Jewish community. After coming back to Judaism, I began to share what I had discovered with my parents and with my husband. And a year after I came back to Judaism, I was able to bring my mother and my father back to Judaism. My husband was a little bit of a different story. He was born and raised Southern Baptist. He was a strong believer, and he had no doubt in his faith. And so I began to share with him what I was finding. And after two years, he came to the point where he realized that there were enough problems with the New Testament that he could no longer believe in it and therefore no longer had a faith in Jesus. But it wasn't like he was ready to convert to Judaism because he wasn't convinced that Judaism was the truth with a capital T. Two and a half years later, or four years after I came back to Judaism, my husband decided that Judaism was the truth with a capital T, and he converted to Judaism, and we were both married under the chuppah at the Etz Chaim Center in Baltimore, Maryland. And there's a lot that I left out of the story, but if you want more details, you're going to have to buy my book or have me come speak to your community. But I just want to thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. It's not over yet. And uh, I look forward to being with you each week as we explore other people's spiritual journeys and the truths that they've discovered. You've been listening to Leap of Faith. I'm Panina Taylor, and I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to be in touch with me, you can email me at panina at paninataylor.com. And before I sign off, I just want to mention that if you follow me and you enjoy Leap of Faith and the other educational material I produce, please consider supporting my work through Patreon. In the next few months, I'm going to be creating exclusive content only available to my patrons. So look for some really cool stuff coming your way. To become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash Panina Taylor, and it will bring up my page. I can only produce the programming that I do with the support of my listeners. So I want to say thank you to all of my followers who are providing that support. You're the reason I'm here. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for being here with me, and I'll see you next time when we take another spiritual adventure together here on Leap of Faith.